Father, we bow before you. And Lord, we pray that you would continue to bless us you have in these past months. Lord, thank you for caring for our members who have been sick, Lord, and you've seen them through. And Lord, we give you praise for that because you are the great physician and your hand has sustained them. Lord, for many of our members who've gone through the uncertainty of their economic situation, God, thank you for bringing peace and contentment and calmness to our lives, knowing that you care for us and that you're, you're going to see us through this. Lord, for those who may have lost a job, I pray, Lord, that even during this, Lord, you would open a door, Lord, that our people would continue to advocate for one another and network for one another, that jobs would become available and we'd get them into wonderful, wonderful jobs. Lord, I, I pray that even as people in the coming days are going to be exposed to this uh, COVID virus and, and contract uh, the virus, Lord, I pray that you'd strengthen our bodies, that they would be able to fight it. And Lord, that you would give us that immunity to it, Lord, that we could live without fear, knowing that you have us in your hands and your protection is great. God, as we give this morning, Father, I just want to give thanks for the wonderful Cornerstone family and friends, Lord, who have been such wonderful stewards of their wealth and their substance through this pandemic. God, I pray that you would continue to meet the needs of our people and Lord, uh, let people see blessings and raises and, and prosperity even in the midst of this and let them know that it's because of you. It's a direct blessing from you. Lord, we believe what the scripture records in the book of James, that every good and perfect gift comes down from our father. And God, we just want to thank you for the wonderful care you've showed your children. Continue to bless our families and sustain us and prosper us and bless us. Lord, for our disciples overseas, Lord, just continue to bless them. Lord, as they give away their rice and their food, Lord, I pray that you would just pour it back on them. Lord, just care for them. Let them be that channel and conduit of blessing to their community. And may many come to know you as Savior because they're acting as your hands and your feet to their people. Father, as we open the word this morning, give us an understanding of what we need to do this week to be more like you. And this is our prayer together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Awesome. All right, Jeremy, let's get to the message this morning. If you have your Bibles or your device, you can go over to Luke chapter 9. I have a, a lengthier portion of scripture I want to read out of Luke chapter 10 this morning. And I want you to Think about what we've just talked about with um, our Indian disciples giving away food and saying as they give it away, we, we don't care what your skin color is or what tribe you come from. We just want you to know that this is done for you in the name of Jesus Christ. And we love you. Do you think about Elijah ministering to the untouchables and baptizing that big group of, of men and women uh, and calling them brother and sister, family. That, just crossing every social boundary with the gospel. That is huge. And I don't want it to be lost on you because it's not always been this way. It is not always this way. And the story this morning from the word of God will, will really drive that home. How radically being a follower of Jesus Christ changes the way you think and, and the way you behave. This is a, 
again now our our second uh parable uh second in our short story series and uh jesus was a master storyteller uh he used stories as a manner of teaching so it was a style of teaching and uh, they call those parables but they're just short stories they typically have one main uh principle maybe multiple truths could be found there but he's telling the story to drive home one main truth and to get his listeners to focus on that one truth and as we study these stories over the next few weeks uh, i just want you to look for that one truth what is that one thing that god is speaking to me through this story so in luke chapter number 10 is the story of the good samaritan before you get to the story of the good samaritan though you need to know a little bit of the context of what precedes uh, luke chapter 10 so let me give you the setting it's found in luke chapter number nine uh if you can imagine a map of israel in your mind uh galilee is the north uh, uh, Jerusalem and Judea is the south, and in the middle of the map of Israel would be a, a land called Samaria. Uh, and the Samaritans, a mixed race of people, lived in the middle section of the land, geographic land of Israel. And as you traveled between the north and the south, from Galilee down to Judea and Jerusalem area, uh, the Jews typically went way around. They avoided you imagine like loop 820 around Fort Worth, you just bypass and go around because you didn't want to go through. And uh, but Jesus would often, as we see in Scripture, John chapter four is another example, the, the woman at the well, where Jesus intentionally goes through and not around. And uh, there's people he wants to interact with. And if people think, well, these are the untouchables, the unclean, it's of no concern to Jesus. They're not unclean in his sight, and he wants to uh, relate to them. He wants to be their savior as well. Let me read Luke 9. I'll show you what happened. Luke 9, 52. Jesus, he sent messengers ahead of him. He's traveling now, north to south, going through Samaria. He sent messengers ahead, and they entered into a village of the Samaritans to make preparations. Let's get some hotel rooms reserved. Let's get some food bought at, at, at the grocery store and let's get ready. Jesus will be here in a few hours. But the people did not receive him because his face was set to go towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this. Now, James and John, these are the sons of Zebedee, known as the sons of thunder. Uh, let me just characterize for a minute. These are commercial fishermen that are short on temper. They don't tolerate a lot of mistreatment of their master. Uh, they, they bow up, that's Texas language, uh, on you a little bit. And so James and John evidently are getting word now that these people are basically spitting in the face of Jesus and Jesus has been dissed by the Samaritans and James and John are just like, oh no, oh no, you didn't. Oh no, you're not. And, and so watch what they say to Jesus. James and John said, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven and consume them? Should we just nuke them all? You know, I mean, you talk about little patience for mistreatment here. And again, they have a certain uh, thinking towards the Samaritans already. Uh, these unclean people are treating our 
rabbi with disrespect. Just say the word, Lord. We're locked and loaded and we'll call fire down from heaven and turn them to ash. Watch Jesus 55. But Jesus turned and rebuked the disciples and they went on to another village. Now, Jesus has just been insulted. And he tells his disciples, no, that's not the kind of people we are. They're going to retaliate against these people. And you're wanting to know, okay, well, how is Jesus going to respond? Rather than get upset and say, you know, enough with these people. Instead, Jesus doesn't get his feelings hurt. He doesn't get distracted by the way they've treated him. He doesn't lose focus on the mission. And instead, what you read in the following verses is that Jesus expands his efforts to make disciples 600%. Rather than say, well, well, nobody wants to hear you know, the good news. Nobody wants to hear him. Rather than get despondent, he redoubled his efforts 600%. And they intensified their discipleship efforts. And it says he launched 72 disciples to go and make disciples. When we say disciples, often we think 12 because there were 12 that followed closely to Jesus, but there's a lot more than 12 and there's a lot more than men. There's a bunch of women that are right there with those men. The 12 are the apostles, the disciples are many. And here he launches 72 disciples and he sent them ahead of him two by two into every town and place where he was about to go. I think the Billy Graham crusade uh, of the past uh, decades picked up on this. It's really how they've operated all these years before Billy Graham would go into a city or into a country, that advanced team would go in and they would begin to shake hands and meet people and, and tell them what's about to happen and get them ready for the crusade that was coming in the gospel presentation they were about to hear. Let's go make friends. Let's go build relationships. This is what we're talking about with our disciples overseas. If you need to give a bag of rice and learn to love someone, let's love them and let's prepare their heart to receive the message that's coming. So now they travel a little bit further and now Jesus is about to be questioned by a lawyer. This is chapter 10 and sets up the story that you all know. Let me read Luke 10, 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And that's a big question. It's asked in a very interesting way. It's almost like, what works do I need to do to go to heaven is, is the way it's, it's way it's sounding. What works do I need to do? And it shows you what the mindset of the lawyer was, you know. And so Jesus is about to tell a story and he says, what is written in the law? Sir, how do you read it? And the man, the lawyer answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, that's a good answer. You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But the lawyer, wanting to justify himself, wanted to say, yes, I've done all of that, said, just for clarification now, and who exactly is my neighbor? <laughs> now, just remember, there's some real tension between the Jews and the Samaritans here. 
Who is my neighbor? Surely not these jerks who've mistreated you. Who is my neighbor? Verse 30. And Jesus replied, let me tell the story to answer your question about who is my neighbor. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers. They stripped him and beat him and departed. You see this guy now, stripped of his clothes, beaten, bruised, bloody, and thrown in the barge, left half dead by the side of the road. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, oh my goodness, look at this bloody naked man. He passed by on the other side of the road. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place, saw him, and he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him, and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, two coins, very valuable, and he gave them to the innkeeper and said to the innkeeper, take care of him and whatever you spend, I will repay when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? And the lawyer answered Jesus and said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, you got it. Good answer. You go and do likewise. Now, when we look at a parable like this, a teaching story, what we're trying to ask ourselves is what is the point of the story? What is the point of Jesus' story? Now, the emphasis of the story is very clearly on doing something because that's what's being discussed. What, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And who is my neighbor? And Jesus says, okay, look at what these people did. You go and do likewise. So, so clearly, the emphasis of the story is on doing something. It's on actions. And because our identity is in Christ, we must act like Christ. If he is our Lord and we are his disciples then we are to follow the behavior of our rabbi, of our master, of our Lord. And his lifestyle is what we are supposed to live because we're in a covenant relationship with God. Our actions towards others must be Christ-like. So the point of the story is simply this. My actions reflect my identity. How I behave, what I do, is a reflection of who I am. My actions reflect my identity. Because we are disciples of Christ, we must live out our relationship with Christ in how we treat people and, and what we do as we live our lives out in the community. The disciples certainly embraced what Jesus had modeled for them. That's clear. Uh, disciples like John, they so understood this principle that when the disciples wrote their writings... John would say something like this. If anyone says, I love God, but hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Now that's a disciple of Jesus writing. 
They got the lesson. That's what's clear. They understood that Jesus was saying to them, you have to love people. And you, and that love is exhibited through your actions. Now, I want to really challenge you now because we live in this modern society of really church-going people in, in this metroplex in which we live. It's not enough to come to church and to say, I believe. This is not really the zenith of Christianity just to come to church once a week and say, yes, I believe. Remember what James said, another one of the followers of Christ, brother of Christ. Remember what James said, faith without works is dead. It's not real. It's empty. It's meaningless. So it's not enough to come to church and say, I believe. That's just kind of a meaningless Christianity. There must be some actions that support that you're in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And it's that indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit that you received that salvation that is equipping you. As we just said a moment ago, when we were talking about deacons, gifted. One of the first qualifications of deacon is seek out people who are filled with the Holy Spirit. People who obviously are living out of that indwelling gifting of the Holy Spirit and they are being equipped to minister and care for the people around them. And the same is true of all of us, not just deacons or elders or people who hold a position in the church. Because we're in a relationship with God, God is equipping us to live out our faith towards the people that we're all going to encounter this week. We're even living in this bit of isolation. We're still encountering people, whether it's online, whether it's virtually, I assume all of you are, uh, well, clearly you can't catch COVID at a protest. That's what's very clear, I guess, if I understand the news correctly. Um, you can't catch COVID at a protest, but you can catch COVID at church. Okay. Uh, I, I don't know how the cases are spreading because most people aren't at church. So it's obviously Walmart or Kroger. But nonetheless, you're meeting people is my point. You are going to impact people. You're going to encounter people. How we interact with them and how we minister to them, most of you are still working. How, however you're engaging with people at work, virtually or in person, people are coming into your life every day and you're to be the hands and feet of Jesus. Let me say it in a more straightforward way. We are required to treat people as Christ would treat people. And this story with the Samaritan is very revealing. Our actions are a reflection of our identity. Who, who we are is being reflected by how we behave. I, I was raised in church. You guys know this by now. And so obviously I have some church baggage. And I believe in God. I affirm the teachings of Jesus Christ. I attend church. I guess I attended church the first week I was born and been there ever since. I read the Bible. I pray. I don't think Jesus has any problems with my affirmations. In other words, he knows, God knows that I, whatever his teachings are, I have said, yes, I believe those. I affirm his teachings. He doesn't have any problems with my affirmations. I think God has problems with my actions. My beliefs are solid. It's, it's my behavior that's questionable. My beliefs are solid. But it's my behavior that doesn't always reflect what my beliefs are. And that's the issue. 
And I'm going to guess for most of you, it's going to be a similar story. I know you believe in God. You're participating this morning in this forum because you know that God has asked his people to meet on, on Sunday, try to connect, come together, and virtually is the way we're doing that right now. And, and you're exhibiting by your very participation right now that you affirm those teachings. You believe in God. You're trying to live that out. You believe the teachings of Jesus and you affirm them. The question is, do our daily actions support and reflect our identity in Christ? Let, let, me, let me make it a, a, a kind of a thesis question that we can teach off of this morning. Do others know that you're in a relationship with God by the way that you treat them? In other words, is your treatment of others so clearly reflective of your identity in Christ that they know you're a follower of Christ just by the way you treat them. As you think about that, let me give you a few quick reflections this morning from the story. I don't know if you caught this as I was reading it, but compassion is the turning point in the story. Several people saw this man that was mugged Wounded, robbed, stripped, left half dead by the roadside. Several people encountered this man. And Jesus was clear with who those people were. It was a Levite. It was a priest. They were people who professed to know God. But those people who professed to know God didn't live as if they knew God. They passed by on the other side. They averted their eyes. You know, they covered their face and they pretended not to see that situation of the man. Those coming from church looked the other way. They, they affirmed that they knew God, but their behavior said something completely different. Their personal piety was more of a, a concern to them than acting out uh, the teachings of the word of God. So in the story, here's where it takes the turn. Now a man arrives who's not dressed for church. Now a man arrives that has a little different pigmentation to his skin. Now a man arrives with a different style. Now a man arrives... And as this man uh, is observed in the story, uh, we can observe that he's not one of us. Now, that's the story. Jesus is a Jew speaking to Jews. And as he's telling the story, they observe that the man now is not one of us. Let's see how the man behaves. And as we're making certain judgments about the man who's not one of us, doesn't look like one of us, the story takes this dramatic shift. The, tor the, the story turns suddenly when the man not like us begins to show compassion. And just as compassion is the turning point in the story, compassion is also the turning point in our stories. Now I want you to think about this. Your whole life hinges on a moment of compassion. Compassion has changed our lives. Someone showing love and kindness to us leaves an indelible mark upon our lives and may forever alter the course of your life. Therefore, our actions towards others must be filled with compassion. 
because compassion and mercy are requirements for disciples of Jesus Christ. They're not optional, they're requirements because love has no boundaries. This is the point of Jesus' story. Second observation, love has no boundaries. There, there, there are no limits here. Jesus will not allow us to set boundaries so that we feel we've completed our obligation to God. In other words, there are no boundaries where we can say, okay, I went to church on Sunday or you know, I did this or I did that. Okay, now I'm done. My obligation is, is complete before God. Now I don't need to think about living. I don't need to think about this for another seven days. Uh, no, it's not like that at all in the scripture. We can't say because we've attended church that we don't have an obligation to help others. That's what Jesus is communicating. If we say we believe in the teachings of Christ, that's not enough. There must be something else to this Christianity. We still are obligated to act like Jesus Christ, and particularly in this story, in how we deal with other people. Not privately, but as we live out our faith, it must be living out the life of Christ. So what's happening is Jesus will not allow them to build this false construct of Christianity where they can say, I've met my obligation. It's enough. I can sit down now, I can quit now, I'm good. Love has no limits where you can say, okay, I've loved enough. All right, now I'm done. Oh, gosh, I've loved for years. Now I can turn that off. Uh, he won't allow that. Love has no limits. And, and love has no criteria where we're allowed to choose which people we will love. Let me say that again. Love has no criteria by which we will say, we will love these kinds of people and only these kinds, they're lovable and we will love them. But if they don't meet this list of my criteria, I will not love them. Jesus is saying, just tear your list up. You're not allowed to make a list. Love has no list and you're not allowed to choose which people you will love. Love has no boundary where we're permitted to love only our kind, whatever your kind are. Gosh, our congregation is, uh, has every background and uh, race and, and color and stripe in it. Every, we have Democrats and Republicans and independents. We, we have right, whites and browns and, and blacks and everything in between. We have all kinds, all kinds. You're not allowed to choose who you're going to love. You must love. You're not allowed to say, well, if you meet my type of people, then I'm going to, to care for you. Jesus is very, with one simple story, dismantling this type of thinking. And Jesus will not allow his disciples to construct limits on love because neighbor has no limits. Now, this is the beauty of the story. And I think the lawyer, he's sharp. I mean, he called on pretty quickly and willing to justify himself, said, okay, now who's my neighbor? He understood that had to be clarified before he could justify himself. And that was really a turning point in the story when Jesus says, okay, well, let's talk about who neighbor is because neighbor has no limits. The story is teaching us that love does not allow limits on our definition of neighbor. When the lawyer said Jesus defined neighbor, Jesus destroyed any thought that you could define 
limits on love and mercy and neighbor. So to say it in a modern way to our congregation this morning, followers of Christ are not even allowed to consider that another human being could not be your neighbor. There's no, let me say it another way, there's no such thing as non-neighbor. There is no non-neighbor to you. If you're listening to this broadcast, everyone you encounter is your neighbor. That was Jesus' point. They wanted to say, well, my neighbor is going to be this narrow definition. Jesus just pulled the boundaries all the way out and said, there are no boundaries. Everyone you meet, if you're walking down the road and someone who's not like you is wounded, that's your neighbor. If you meet somebody who is like you, that's your neighbor. If you meet someone who's a different color, a different vocation, a different nationality, that's your neighbor. If you meet a stranger, that's your neighbor. If you meet your cousin, that's your neighbor. If you meet your extended family, those are your neighbors. Neighbor is anyone you're going to meet. So Christ doesn't really, really the, the definition of neighbor is Christ doesn't allow them to define neighbor. It only allows us to be a neighbor. You're not allowed to define neighbor. You're only allowed to be a neighbor. We cannot say in advance who our neighbor is because neighbor is anyone we're going to meet this week. We're not allowed to predetermine. We will only be neighborly towards one group. Neighbor is anyone. We cannot define neighbor because nearness and need determine who is our neighbor. Anyone near to us and anyone in need is your neighbor. That's what Jesus is communicating to the lawyer and to his disciples and really to us through this story that's been preserved for us in the gospel. Nearness and need determine who neighbor is. Which means if you're pushing your cart across the parking lot at Kroger this week and someone is near and they're struggling, it's your obligation to go and help them load the groceries in their car. If the cart gets away and the kids are running in front of, it's your obligation to interject yourself into that and be a neighbor. Nearness and need determine who is neighbor. Because our identity is being disciples of Christ, we're not allowed to make boundaries that would close off compassion to people that we're encountering. We're not allowed to make boundaries that permit racism. It's just not allowed for followers of Christ. We're to think in terms of neighbor, brother, and sister, not boundaries. It's not permitted. We're not allowed to make boundaries that allow for attitudes of superiority. Christians, I think, many times are guilty, maybe not of racism or things like that, but they're guilty of feeling superior. I'm the elect. You know, we should be saying, by the grace of God, I'm saved, not I'm some superior class of person. I mean, we need to remember from where we came and not have a superior attitude. You know, the scripture says, you know, be not high-minded, but condescend to men of low estate. Let me say it in a modern way, because that's a little bit hard to understand. No one's beneath you. No one's beneath you. Put yourself on the level of who might be the lowest in society and love them as brothers and neighbors. You say, well, wow, we're not allowed to do all that. Let me tell you what you are allowed to do. You're allowed to love. 
and you're allowed to love generously and you're allowed to love everyone uh, and you're allowed to even love your enemies and pray for them. You're allowed to love in big proportions this morning. So if you're saying, wow, the Bible won't let me do anything. Yes, it will. It lets you love and, and, and just love and love and show compassion. But our love, like God's love, must have actions. And really, that's the last thing I really want to communicate to you this morning is love must have actions. If it doesn't have actions, is it love? A love is not a passive, just an emotional word. Love is an action word. Love has actions, and you cannot do justice to Jesus' story without emphasizing that Christ is demanding action from them. He's saying to his disciples, it's not enough to say, I believe in God. I affirm the teachings. Next week, we're going to ratify our governing documents. Let me, let me show you an example. In our governing documents is our uh, statement of beliefs. I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a summary of eight or nine core beliefs and just page after page. After, we believe in the virgin birth and the resurrection and the Trinity and, all, you know, all this. It's not enough just to, to, to say, yes, I sign the covenant. I affirm these beliefs. We must live it out now. Our lives must have actions. Love must have actions. Now, the problem is some people get nervous here and say, well, you're, you're advocating salvation by works. Not at all. Not at all. Uh, I'm not advocating salvation by works. I'm advocating that people who are truly saved will have works. James says, if you are really a believer and your life's been transformed by God, the Holy Spirit's going to equip you to love and to live out the life of Christ. What I'm saying this morning is that Christ demands that we live out our relationship with God in how we treat the people around us. It's the most clearly defining measure that we are the children of God. You know, the great badge of discipleship was you, they're going to know your disciples if you love one another. Loving our neighbor and loving God is not something less than faith. It is the fullest expression of genuine faith. And we should be concerned that perhaps we've lived out a false narrative of what it means to be a follower of Christ. By going to church on Sunday and maybe having a certain dress code or a certain moral code, but never interacting with people according to love and compassion and living out the life of Christ to people in love, compassion, care, concern, ministry, when the Bible demands that of followers of Christ, because I'm a disciple of Christ, I must love others. And the big discipleship lesson on love is love has action. So let me give you this kind of a takeaway thought here this morning. God wants to take you from a person of knowledge to a person of action. Now we are big on knowing at Cornerstone. We have equip modules. We engage you on a discipleship level to get you in the word of God and, and have lots of intimate conversations about learning the word of God and learning how to live the life of Christ. But, but knowledge is not enough. Matter of fact, Paul said in, in 1 Corinthians, you need to be careful of knowledge. Knowledge puffs up. Knowledge makes you feel superior. Knowledge gives you kind of a ego and pride and you begin to think, well, now that I, you know, can say pseudepigrapha and superlapsarianism, and now that I can say these big theological words, I'm somehow superior to others. Not at all. 
Not at all. God wants to take you from being a person of knowledge to being a person of action. The real sweet spot of Christianity is to be growing in your understanding, but then also to be growing in your actions. That's the real sweet spot. And that's what discipleship really models for us. Let, let me ask you some takeaway questions. And uh, You're either going to watch party this morning or maybe you're, you're alone on the couch there watching me with your family. Um, just shout out the answers. What would have happened if the bandits had returned while the Samaritan was helping the injured man? He finds the injured man, stripped, naked, beaten, bloody, semi-conscious, unconscious, we're not sure, but a mess. He stops to help him. What happens if the bandits return right now? What do you think happens to the Samaritan? Shout it out. Go ahead. In your watch party. If you're shouting out right now, he also gets mugged. You're probably right. You're probably right. If the thugs return... Maybe it's an ambush. Maybe it's a trap. You know, you get one injured guy, then you hide in the bushes. And when somebody comes to help, then you get that guy too. I want you to think about that. The Samaritan took a big risk. Let me ask you another question. What action would the Samaritan have taken if he had arrived five minutes earlier? Robbery in process. Right in the middle of the mugging. What action do you think the Samaritan would have taken? Some of you Texans are thinking, well, if he's a concealed carry, uh, no, no, I, 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 but you're thinking along the right lines now. He's a man of action and a man of compassion and a man of love. If he comes upon the man being beaten, stripped and abused, I think he jumps right in the middle of that and, and, and helps defend the defenseless man who's now wounded. Isn't that what you, let me spin the story a little bit. The man in the ditch who's wounded is your loved one. That's your loved one. That's your son or your daughter or your father or your mother being mugged on the side of the highway. Do you want the Samaritan to stop and defend your loved one? <laughs> yes. I mean, I can make it much more mild story. That's your sister with a flat tire on the side of the highway. Do you want the Samaritan to stop and help her change the tire? You know, call AAA, whatever. Yes, you do. What I'm saying is compassion is the turning point. But what you figure out very quickly is any attempt to love someone else means taking a risk. Taking a risk. You say, well, if I stop to help, I'm my life is it? Yes, it is. And this is where you have to have faith and trust that God's going to care for you. If I give and help someone and I give away that $100 to this family in need, what about my family? Is God going to care for my family? Yes, he's quite able to do that for you. He'll open the windows of heaven and care for you. What I'm saying is love requires you to take a risk. And you know, I know I'm reading your mind right now. You're thinking, well, if I put it all out there and love someone, what if my feelings are stepped on? What if I, love is not reciprocated? 
that may be the case. But doesn't that make you very much like Jesus Christ? Who so loved the world and gave his own life. And they spit on him and rejected him, and he did. It didn't stop him from loving. This is what we're being called to do. To live out the life of Christ. Now, if you'll do that, here's what I can promise you. If you put these teachings of Jesus into actions in your life, don't put boundaries on neighbor. Don't put boundaries and limits on love. Don't say these are my kind of people and these are not my kind of people. People are our kind of people. Any people are Christ's kind of people. Therefore, any people are my kind of people. And I'm called to love them and to serve them. When you begin to live this way, not only will your lives be filled with joy, filled, just you, this thing bubbles up in you, this joy of following in the actions of Christ, the love and the compassion and the mercy that we're showing others begins to bless the lives of other people. And, and that's like a key in the lock of their heart. It begins to open their heart to the gospel of Jesus Christ and the teachings of Christ. And before long, they also become followers of Christ. So our takeaway today may be many different things. Today, we need to deal with any root of racism in our own hearts. And we need to say to God, all people are my people. And God, if I sometimes feel like those aren't my people, I realize maybe there's some root problem there in my heart. God, take that out of my life. Ask him to remove it. Ask him to give you a different attitude. Say, God, take that out of my life and give me a love for people not like me. Give me a love for all people. We need to break any attitudes of superiority in our lives. And that may require some real work and some real prayer. We could begin this morning just by saying, God, when I think myself superior to others, I realize this is not a Christ-like thought. Lord, I, I need to humble myself, and I'm sorry for that. Confess it, call it sin, and say, God, help me to develop a love for all men and women. We need to break down walls that separate us from people not like us. And we need to remember this morning that neighbor is determined by nearness and need. Anyone near you and anyone in need is our neighbor, no regard to anything else. And because of our identity with Christ, we need to put above all love into actions. It's hard for me to tell you what all those actions should be. A lot of that depends on the moment, depends on the situation you find yourself in, whether it's dealing with your children, your spouse, or people outside of your home. But love has actions. Let's all remember that. And if you say, I love my spouse, you'll need to show that at some point. If you say, I love my children, at some point you need to show that through your actions. Jason Payton sitting here with us this morning. He was just telling me as he came in all the fun things you guys have been doing together. That's showing Payton you love him through your actions. If we're going to use the words and say, I subscribe to the teachings of Jesus, we must then show it by how we love one another. After our prayer, I have some links that'll go live for you.
and uh, I'll see you next week for the things that we need to do then. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that this morning you would show us the actions that we need to take in situation by situation as we live out our lives this week. Lord, our heart is to be more like you. Lord, you've shown us a lot of things this morning about how to treat others and how to prepare our hearts and minds in advance that we would not think ourselves superior. We would not think in terms of our kind of people and not our kind of people or classifications of people. Lord, give us a heart for people, period. Lord, help us to love as you loved us. Lord, thank you for a wonderful, wonderful family at Cornerstone who does show love and care for one another and for this community. God, as we live out our lives this week, we know you'll have some divine appointments for us. Lord, may our understanding, may our eyes be opened in that moment to see it for what it is as a divine opportunity to love and to show it through our actions. Lord, if we have any wrong attitudes, Lord, we confess those as sin this morning and ask you to help us pull those attitudes and thoughts down and bring them into subjection to the word of God. Lord, that we might have the mind of Christ. Lord, bless our families this week as we live out another week honoring you. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. See you next week.